0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Averill Seal on January 19, 2016. Averill is both an author and a musician. We talk about three books he's written and he reads excerpts from all three. And we talk about three of his musical compositions and play them in the interview. You can find all his literary works on his website, The Trailhead. His song, One Sky, can be found on YouTube. I started the interview by asking Avril where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew
1: up in deep south Texas. I grew up 10 miles from Mexico and about 60 miles from the Gulf in a town called McAllen. It's in the the Rio Grande Valley region of Texas. It's almost as far south as you can get. I think the Keys in Florida might be a little farther south. But other than that, we're the farthest south in in the, the continental United States. You know, I have fond memories of growing up there. I don't live there now. I live in Austin, which is where I came to school uh, when it was time to go to college. I grew up as a racial minority. I don't pretend that that was the same kind of experience that true national minorities grow up with. Mm -hmm. Of course, whiteness was all over our media and, and so forth. And, you know, our towns were somewhat segregated along racial and economic lines like Pretty much all towns are. Mm-hmm. It was a basically a suburban existence. At one point, I we lived in the middle of a citrus orchard, but then we went up. By the time I was really in grade school, we moved into town. It was just kind of a you know, for all I knew, it was just just a regular upbringing. It's a it's a subtropical region, and so there are palm trees everywhere, and as I said, citrus crops and lots of produce, and uh, occasionally exotic fauna in the area. I wouldn't change that childhood. Now, was your social life segregated as well, or did you have a lot of Hispanic friends? I did have a lot of Hispanic friends. You know, I would say that in our school, in my public grade school that I went to, it was probably closer to half and half, Anglo and Hispanics. For a number of social and cultural reasons, there were virtually no blacks in the region where I grew up. There were maybe a hundred in a in a 4 county area, and so... I had to come north to Austin to really experience ethnic diversity, really people of every hue at a large public research university, which incidentally is where I still work to this day, so I spent a large fraction of my life at that mm-hmm. university. There was no trace of prejudice in my parents, thankfully. I look back at old photos of my birthday parties, and they were Anglo and Hispanic affairs. I think that's the way my parents wanted it, and that's the way it was. And what was religious life growing up for you? I grew up as a Presbyterian. My parents, neither one of them, grew up as Presbyterians. When we moved first moved to McAllen, there was a sort of a shopping around for a church home for them. Uh, my mother's father was a Baptist preacher. It was quite the, the scandal <laughs> for a little while, I think, when she decided to become a Presbyterian. I sort of likened my my move. From Christianity into the Bahai faith it was probably felt a lot like her move from <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> from being Baptist Southern Baptist to being a you know, mainline Presbyterian. Uh, there's maybe some some historical echoes there. And then my father's family was was up there were disciples of Christ or something like that. And I'll say I was very happy and active member of of our church, First Presbyterian in McAllen. Uh, I was an active youth. I was a delegate to a national convention. It was held in Indiana every three years. And I was the only youth representative from the Rio Grande Valley (laughs) to go to that on a school bus to uh, Purdue in Indiana. And then lots of conferences, youth conferences throughout the year, summer camp and so forth. So I was uh, uh, eminently steeped in Presbyterian
0: life growing up. And you carried that through all of your childhood in high school?
1: Yes, uh-huh. sure. All the way through high school and into college, actually, mm-hmm. I was when I came to Austin to college, I uh, immediately began attending the University Presbyterian Church and uh, saying I was a, a paid soloist in the choir there. and um, I was really quite active you know, for, especially for a college student, quite active in church life, all the way through my
0: college career. And when was it that you ran into the Baha'i faith?
1: Well, after college, I returned to the valley and became a newspaper reporter by and by after about two years of kicking around and and substitute teaching. And I was in a band for a while. And then I finally uh, landed at a newspaper as a reporter. And I had the religion beat.
0: Was that just by accident or how did that
1: happen? I had the lifestyle beat at that paper. And I wasn't strictly on – writing about religion you know i would write about you know roadside attractions and <laughs> human interest stories and i had a column that i wrote twice a week and it was sort of social criticism and humor and so you know i was sort of in the soft news side of the newsroom anyway the uh, the features side and so this religion uh, page kind of came open to me and i enjoyed it you know one week i would write about Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and the next week it might be Mormonism, and so forth. I kind of went all the way around you know, As far as uh, diversity in in that part of the state was concerned, uh, I kind of went all the way around the the clock on it. There was a friend of our family's who was a Baha'i. I I had never heard of the Baha'i faith, but one day he just called me up uh, in the newsroom and said, Hey, Averill, I've noticed you've been writing on religion. Have you ever heard of the Baha'i faith? I said, No. What's that? He said, well, why don't you come over to the house, and uh, my wife and I will tell you a little bit about it. If you think it's interesting, maybe you can write something up in the paper. So I did, and I did find it quite interesting. The time I met his kids, I was very impressed with their children and uh, uh, sort of the maturity that they showed. I went on to write a couple of full-page treatments of the faith. I went into the history of it and talked about uh, the central tenets, and that was published. And then About 12 years went by, (laughs) interestingly, (laughs) before it came up again. I found it very interesting, the whole idea of progressive revelation, but it was just at a point in my life where I was content. What is progressive revelation? Well, that is, I think, the central theology in the Baha'i faith, which is that uh, God reveals his will to humanity progressively or gradually, age by age, and he does this with what we refer to as manifestations of God, humans that he has appointed to carry his message to God. And so we have a situation, I liken it to uh, to the schoolhouse, where all of the teachers are uh, working for a, for one principal, and you can think of that principal or superintendent as God, and then you have teachers at every level, and they're teaching their students at the level at which they can understand the material. They're teaching an age-appropriate curriculum. And so the first-grade teacher might be talking about different things than the fifth-grade teacher, but that doesn't mean that one is right and the other is wrong. It simply means that they're teaching their students at the the point at which they can understand the material. In a nutshell, that's that's how I think of progressive revelation.
0: And that was attractive to you?
1: Yeah, I, I remembered it. it. Again, it was... a. You know, it's one of those curious things in life, how I can be you know, so immersed in it now. And back then, I kind of found it interesting for a week, and then I moved on to something else. Right. <laughs> but the seed was planted. You know, you hear people talk about this sometimes with the faith. Uh, the seed was planted, and I never forgot about that. And as I say, 12 years went by, and I went through changes in my life, you know, changed jobs, changed cities, and so forth. At long last, I, I decided to write this book. It was my first book, and it was sort of this audacious theory of everything kind of a book in which I talk about—I try to come to a comprehensive theory of the human being, and in that it takes on kind of a threefold nature. I talk about biology some, and I talk about psychology, and in the last part I talk about spirituality— um, which I think is really what distinguishes humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom, and in that I started doing a lot of comparative religious reading. you know I read treatment of Buddhism and I looked into Islam and so forth, and I was wrapping up the book. I felt like i was I had a good manuscript going, and I was kind of coming to the end of it. I was about chapter fourteen or so <laughs> mm. out, of, out of fifteen, and um I thought to myself, you know i, I I better just to make sure I'm not missing something. I probably ought to go back and look at that Baha'i faith thing again. And so I uh, went on Amazon.com. This was in Amazon's early days, and uh, looked up, you know, punched in the Baha'i faith and ordered the cheapest book they offered on it. It was, I think, it was five ninety five, and it was J. E. Eslamont's uh, Baha'u'llah in the New Era. And I got this book in the mail and. Uh, started into it and I say I'd say I was about 30 pages in and realized that the book that I was reading was really the book that I was trying to write and it just kind of struck me like a bolt you know from the blue that this was this uh, faith that I was reading about was the name for this thing I always felt that I had been through my history and when I became a Baha'i, there were some changes, of course I had to make, like everybody would, but I really felt that it was more I had discovered the name for what I was in a lot of ways, as opposed to you know rejecting everything I had ever been and embracing this entirely new thing it, it Its teachings, and it, there was something familiar about it at once when I started looking into it. Mm. So that's the kind of the curious journey <laughs>
0: of how I came to the faith. So you sort of expanded your relationship to Christianity to an investigation of maybe there's something greater than Christianity in your journey? After college, I had gone back to my church and
1: dearly loved the people there, but there was just, I felt like there was something missing. Uh, and then I moved back up here, I attended a Methodist church for several years. And again, that was, the sense of community and all of that was there, and I loved the the music and the choir and so forth, but I just felt, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, it was just I was sort of bored hmm. with it. I felt like um, I didn't have that burning that Rumi talks about. Hmm. <laughs> I wasn't uh, on fire for God or for a, any faith at that point. I was just, I had inherited this uh, tradition from uh, my family, and it had stood me in good stead but I just had this nagging feeling that there was something more out there that I wasn't getting.
0: So the book you're referring to that you were working on at the time was The Hall, the Sail, and the Rudder, A Search for the Body, Mind, and Soul. Right. And I had asked for you to pick out a passage, so maybe you could introduce the passage that you are going to share. Sure, I'd love to. Well, the... The thesis
1: of the book is that we are these threefold type of creature, and that the sailboat is a, is a great analogy for the human being. Uh, the hull being our bodies and that biological thing that that keeps us afloat on the surface of the universe, if you will, the material universe. The sail is really our minds, something that's. Uh, that we describe as psychology and the sail gives you power to move across our material universe so it's like this it's you know the sail gives you that the the forward motion of consciousness and of sensory perception and of course plants have have bodies after a fashion so they have holes animals have uh, bodies and animals have minds i think more and more people are coming to the are are concluding, they have emotions. Animals have psychology, no no question. Uh, so the thing that that distinguishes humanity is this third layer, in the sailboat. This is the rudder, and the rudder is that tool by which we can choose our direction that we go. It's not necessarily just the power to move forward; it's the power to steer. Just like the sailboat, these three different Facets of human life have different internal structures that are that are the same. The hull has a a, a sort of nested structure, in which you have you know the plywood, and then outside hit the, you have the fiberglass, and then the paint, and so forth. You have this nesting effect. The uh, the sail is a spectral in nature. It's it's up or it's down, you know, and it, it it rises and falls like a lot like our consciousness does. We have sleep, and we have trance, and we have a sort of hyper-awareness that might come with meditation. So we have all these sort of the spectrum that we move through with our minds. And then the rudder is uh, is like our soul in that it is polar in nature. It's either back or forth. We use that polar idea of good and evil to steer away from things we, we deem bad. And so this notion of good versus evil is I, you know, relate to sort of the back and the forth of the rudder uh, in the way that it, it helps. So this is early on in the book, but it's sort of the, the summation of why I distinguish these things. As a teenager, my friends and I played a well-known role-playing game called Dungeons and Dragons. If this makes me a geek or a nerd, <laughs> I accept the label with radiant acquiescence. In the game... Each player became a character that was partly of his own imagination. You would pick your species human, dwarf, elf, etc., your gender, and some other superficial traits. Then you would roll the dice to determine your character's attributes. These scores would determine how well you would fare in future conflicts and situations. There were six categories strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, and charisma. I have to ask, Warren, did you play this game? No, but I've heard of it. So intelligent, in quotes, and wise were both synonyms for smart. So what was the difference between intelligence and wisdom, I wondered. Socrates allegedly said, knowledge is virtue. But was it? It seemed to me that to know something was one thing, and to do the right thing was altogether something different. To know a lot of facts was intelligence. To do the right thing was wisdom. Ultimately, I had to conclude that intelligence was a function of the body. We could nurture intelligence in, as much, in much the same way as we could build healthier bodies, because intelligence was the functioning of one part of our body. It was above-the-neck neural fitness. We were born with a given capacity for intelligence. We could adjust it, but as any school teacher would tell you, some kids were born just plain smarter than others. Intelligence was a function of the body. Wisdom, on the other hand, was a function of the soul and slid around on a different axis than intelligence. Those with high IQs did not seem any more given to acts of kindness. Indeed, Didn't we have evidence from throughout history of the, quote, evil genius? Every tyrant of history was, almost by definition, highly intelligent. The ability to manipulate people and forces for one's own gain were hallmarks of high intelligence, but were, if anything, antithetical to goodness. The word wise was rarely used in reference to tyrants. Conversely, people, even with various forms of mental retardation, could exhibit high levels of soulful kindness, profound love and goodness, intelligence and wisdom, different rolls of the dice. Bertrand Russell once wrote, I have been considering the increased command over the forces of nature which men have derived from scientific knowledge, but this, although it is a precondition of many forms of progress, does not of itself ensure anything desirable. On the contrary, the present state of the world and the fear of an atomic war show that scientific progress without a corresponding moral and political progress may only increase the magnitude of the disaster that misdirected skill may bring about. End quote. This seemed undeniable. Though they were different and fulfilled different functions, there was an implied mandate that the hull, sail, and the rudder increase proportionately. If you had a big hull, you had better have a big sail, and if you have a big sail, you had better have a big rudder, both for your sake and for the sake of the boats around you. Since the Enlightenment, the greatest debates had raged between materialism and dualism, but the most convincing evidence to me pointed to this trinity, not to oneness or two-ness, but threeness. The human had been classified scientifically as Homo sapiens sapiens, in recognition of the fact that fossils had been found that were different from ours, but nevertheless were the bones of hominids who could think, or sapiens. This label implied that we were the thinkers of the thinkers, that we were the thinking hominids hominid. It was flattering to award ourselves a title that implied we had more going on upstairs than did Neanderthals or Australopithecines. But instead of Homo sapiens sapiens, I thought a less redundant and far more useful description of our species would have been Homo sapiens consciens capturing our three essential dimensions, body, mind, and soul. Because it wasn't just having double the smarts, but rather having a soul, a conscience, conscience that set us apart not only from other ill-fated hominids that preceded us and even competed with us, but from all the rest of earthly nature. It wasn't just having a bigger sail or having two or three or twelve sails to the animal's one, but rather having a rudder that set us apart, a soul, free will, having some control over our direction." You have a website called the Trailhead. That's right. The Trailhead is the name of it, and it's it's A V R E L Seal S E A L E dot WordPress dot com. Mm-hmm. Actually, and all I, my books are also available at, at Lulu dot com.
0: All I had to do was Google the Trailhead Averil Seal, and and I found it. It was the yeah, first. That's,
1: that's the benefit of having a really unusual name. Yeah, it, it was, came right I up. Never really, I never really benefited from the name until
0: the internet age. No, I, I now you're grateful. Right. As, a, as a teenager, why do I have that stupid name? That's right. Growing up, it wasn't always easy. A substitute teacher never got my name right. Oh,
1: okay.
0: All right, let's cover another book. You wrote a book called The Tree, A Spiritual Proposition and Selected Essays. Can you uh, right. tell me what inspired you to write that book? And if do you have an excerpt you can share with us?
1: Sure. Well, everyone, to uh, to take a metaphor and run it into the ground <laughs> completely like I did with my first book, uh, this is actually a much shorter book than that first one. was sort of my magnum opus and kind of everything in the kitchen sink. And in this one, I just wanted to write a kind of a simple, spare book. I'm not the first one to make the observation that that trees and humans have a lot in common. And I had read a few things in the faith that had made similar comparisons. I thought for this one, I would just start at the very beginning. I've got just a page or two earmarked here. Uh, And this will kind of give you the the idea of of what I was going for. Uh, And this is chapter one, and it's called The Tree. We pass them daily here and there occasionally awed by the showier of their number, but mostly taking them in subconsciously as background to the more mobile elements of our world. We cut them down by the millions for chairs and tables and newspapers and junk mail. In life and in death, they serve us in every conceivable way. They sacrificed themselves to allow us our earliest accomplishment, the prehistoric campfire. They gave us warmth and kept the blackness of the night at bay. They provided the most precious symbols of our religions, the Ark of the Covenant, made from acacia, the Bodhi tree, the sacred fig under which the Buddha received enlightenment, the burning bush, the cross. From this lofty station they have served and all the way down to toilet paper, At birth, we are laid in a cradle made from their yield, and at death, into a coffin of the same. Our lives are intertwined as much as any two life forms could be, never mind how lopsided their relationship has thus far been. Some of us appreciate them, some have made studying them, saving them, or planting them their life's work. But perhaps most significantly, we use them as symbols of ourselves— We plant them to commemorate births and deaths of our own kind. This is done out of a vague recognition of the nobility that planting a tree is an act that will outlive us. And yet, even if it is a long-term investment, it nevertheless is one that can be appreciated in the seasons of one's own life. But I am deeply suspicious that there is more to this habit of planting trees to commemorate birth and death, a deeper connection it is as if we recognize at a gut level that a single tree is a physical reminder of a single human being, that over and above the fact that our lives are so inextricably linked, the tree is a silent stand-in for a human soul. Consider, though most are larger than we are, they nonetheless exist on more or less a human scale. They have arms and occasionally legs. They have personality stately or gnarly, thorny or fruity, and infinite combinations of all these and other traits. And, like us, they have individuality. Though they have classifications and varied types, they are unique specimens. No two are the same. The patterns of their bark, no less unique than a fingerprint. These connections and similarities seem to be more than coincidental, more than a convenient metaphor onto which we can project certain features of our own nature, only to cast them off when the metaphor no longer fits, latching on to some other object in nature or science. No, I believe that the relationship between humans and trees is deep beyond anything we can imagine, that it is profound, the similarities infinite, and the parallels divinely designed. And Warren, then I go on to... To spin this out over the next uh, 120 or so pages. <laughs> and, you know, I talk about the sun as God and the way that we can only reach our fullest potential by growing toward God. I start with the acorn and then the roots, and then talk about the gardener and the, the act of pruning and what pruning does to growth. I'll talk about the forest and the orchard and the, the tree of life and so forth. So I really, uh, as I say, I beat this metaphor <laughs> into yeah. the ground, as I, as I want to do. Right. But that was a, a fun book to write.
0: Yeah, the concept of the, the sun interested me because as humans, we have this inner nature to want to move toward transcendence, I think. If you plant a tree, it, it needs to reach the sun. It will tilt itself to get mm-hmm. where it needs to, to get to that sun, to get its... That's right. The spiritual sustenance, just as we crave spiritual connection as well. Mm-hmm. So that's really, it's really, really good. And you know, you reminded me,
1: they'll grow in the oddest places too. Mm. <laughs> Not only will they reach for the sun, but they'll take root if, in a rock. If, if, on a rock, I've seen trees growing out of other trees. You know, the, mm. some giant cypress tree will have a hole in the side with a with a willow sapling coming out of that. So. They're quite incredible, yeah. and they, as I say, you know, the the more I went into this, I was like, oh, and that this is that, and this other thing is
0: this.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah. I kind of got got carried away with it, but uh, that's that's how you write a book, I guess, that you get carried away with the things. Well,
0: that can be exciting. You say, oh yeah, and there's this aspect, and then there's this aspect. This is really exciting. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a yeah, it's kind of a Rosetta
1: Stone. Yeah, you know? I think I might even say that somewhere in the book. You know, if we can, if we can accept the premise that we are to God as trees are to the sun, and I'll say that too. That you know, no metaphor is perfect. We, you always, you know, eventually come up to the limits of, of a metaphor, but you can really uh, gain some deep insights in, into the dynamics of growth toward God and the relationships to each other. What are vines in the context of trees? At one point, I go into that, and, and vines are sort of like drug addiction. There are these things that take us over, you know, and block us out from the sun, just like vines will do if you let them, you know, kudzu in the south or other vines that just utterly take over a tree. You know, they they can be like that. So if you can accept the premise, then it becomes like this Rosetta stone and you can really uncover a lot of, I think, mysteries from looking at an object in nature like that. And really, I think that's, for my money, that's why nature exists in a way. I mean, it that might seem very uh, very anthrocentric to say nature exists for us, but in the absence of any other theory uh, of why it would exist, I mean, I think a lot of nature exists for its explanatory power in the spiritual world for us. It's for us to, to look and say, oh, that's how the world works. I need to be more like that and less like this other thing.
0: Now, don't the Baha'i writings somewhere... Speak about nature being a reflection of the spiritual world. Mm-hmm, absolutely, they do. Well, for for one thing,
1: Baha'u'llah, the Prophet founder of the faith, had a a very touching relationship to nature because he was deprived of it for so long during his lifetime. He was he was imprisoned for most of his adult life, and in places where he couldn't even get a view of. Uh, he, he said that his at one point, he said his eyes thirsted for verdure. There wasn't anything green in prison city where he was holed up. And so he went camping. He was a camper, actually. Buyers mm. <laughs> don't use that term very often, but whenever I get him out camping, I think, yeah, Baha'u'llah did this too. He he understood the value of, of that uh, solace that nature could bring. I agree with you. I do think, uh, although I don't have them at, at my fingertips, there is scripture that talks about nature being, uh, as you say, the physical mirror of a spiritual reality.
0: A third book that I'd like to have you read an excerpt from is True Freedom and the Wisdom of Virtue How the Baha'i Principles of Personal Morality Make Life Better. What inspired you to write that book? And uh, I look forward to hearing an excerpt. Well, thank you. I wrote this fairly
1: early on, in and I'll say I've been a Baha'i for, let's see, about 14 years now. Wow, I haven't (laughs) said that out loud, but uh, it doesn't seem like that long, but it has been. And I was 35 when I became a Baha'i, and, you know, one is pretty set in their ways, so I brought a lot of baggage to the faith at that age. I said before that that it was very familiar to me. But at the same time, there were a whole host of things that were very different. And this was an attempt to really explain to myself the wisdom of these things that seemed alien to me. I lumped this in with things that are alien to Westerners who are coming to the Baha'i faith because I think, as I say in here, there's a whole other set of things that would be alien about the faith to, to Easterners. But I'll read this little passage here, and maybe that will um, help explain what I'm talking about. Baha'is believe that they have been entrusted with God's will for this stage of humanity's collective life, the cusp between adolescence and full maturity. And Baha'is believe that the correct spiritual laws for the current age were revealed by the prophet Baha'u'llah, a remarkable figure who was born in Persia in 1817 and died in the Holy Land in 1892, having led the most extraordinary life in all human history. There are many superior books written about him and many wonderful introductions to the Baha'i faith, which any curious soul should read at once. Endlessly fascinating, though it is, To veer into an overview of the Baha'i faith would be to expand the scope of this work unnecessarily. Suffice it to say that if given the chance, the Baha'i faith has the power to revolutionize your worldview and your life in ways you cannot currently imagine. The Baha'i revelation, as all authentic religious revelations, challenges all people. It changes the rules of the game. No society in existence, East, West, West north or south, could be completely comfortable with the Baha'i revelation without exploring the wisdom at its heart. This book is focused on the challenges that it presents primarily to the westerner, challenges that, that revolve around the perceived curtailing of personal freedoms. To new Baha'is of the East, there would be an entirely different set of challenges, such as the equality of the sexes relaxing of ritual obligations relative to, say, Islam, or any other, quote, progressive or liberalizing elements of the revelation. But in the West, surely coming to terms with the true nature of freedom is among our paramount challenges. In the following pages are six ways in which the Baha'i Faith challenges the radical individualism of mainstream Western society. One, chastity outside marriage and related issues, including cohabitation and homosexuality. Two, abstention from alcohol, both the curse to society that alcohol is and the social challenges that abstaining from it can present. Three, detachment from materialism and the pathology of consumerism that grips our society in particular. Four, abstention from partisan politics, And the related issue of obedience to government. Five, abstention from criticism in a world where gossip is an industry, the insult is celebrated, and criticism of all things is inculcated virtually from birth. And finally, adapting to the devotional life prescribed by the faith, including practices largely unfamiliar to Westerners, such as obligatory prayer and fasting. In all cases, we will seek to discover a small portion of the profound wisdom that underlies these teachings and illustrate how these are not only ordinances from God for our age, but also are logical, reasonable, and make good sense in view of the statistics from a world that is increasingly troubled by their neglect. We observe these laws not out of the fear of eternal damnation, a concept that Baha'is reject, but at least in part because they make life easier. They help us avoid some classic pitfalls of human existence. They make life better in the here and now, as well as in the hereafter.
0: It reminds me of a quote that Baha'u'llah, in one of his writings, he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, think not that I've revealed merely a, a code of laws but rather I've provided the choice wine. Of course, the wine is the metaphor of knowing that Baha'is don't drink, but the idea is that these laws, as you state in the excerpt, these laws are to make our lives better, not to constrain us and and cause us to be miserable. Right, right. I, I do think God just wants us to be happy.
1: I'm a father, and I want nothing more for my boys, my three boys, than, than to be happy. Now, that's very different from saying I want them to have fun all the time because th- that's not the way the world <laughs> works. I want, th- I want them to be truly happy in the long run, and that means learning self-discipline and learning what's important, what's not. Just you know, That doesn't mean video games and candy 24 hours a day. There's a similar dynamic at play between God and the human race, he just wants us to be happy, and all of these laws, which, are, which seemingly curtail our happiness, really enables happiness in the long run. It's just short-term versus long-term. That's the only, really the only difference.
0: Now, um, you're a musician as well. I am. I asked you to share some of your music on the uh, program as well and the first song that i'd like to play in the interview is a song called one sky and i was wondering if you could introduce that before we play it sure this is a song i wrote maybe 5 years ago or so
1: i actually am playing piano on it i'm playing all the instruments on the, on this track but for some reason i wrote it on piano piano's not my instrument guitar is my my number one instrument but this is a classic bahai inspired song i think and it's really the title says it all this world has one sky there are no when you look up there are no borders there are no artificial boundaries between people and you know i think that's god trying to tell us something there's one unifying reality you know you can think of uh, pollution you know pollution never stops at the border Really, people don't either, (laughs) but pollution really doesn't stop. I mean, uh, you know, we live thousands of miles away, and and occasionally we'll get uh, these—it'll be hazy outside, and people will be asking themselves, what's with this haze? And sometimes it's fires in Mexico. You know, they're burning fields in Mexico to plant. They're burning rainforests down there, and it'll just be like—it'll look like L.A. here in Texas because a thousand miles away, they're burning these forests. We even get these uh, sandstorms that come over from the Sahara. They can make their way all the way across the Atlantic and really color our sunsets over here or affect the color of the sky. This is a, definitely a Baha'i-inspired song
0: called One Sky. And before I play it, it reminds me of the quote from Baha'u'llah. that says, the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So here is One Sky. you wrote is not Baha'i-inspired, but you had mentioned that you're a father of three boys, and so maybe you can talk about the song My Boy. Sure. One
1: of the blessings in my life is that I've had a good friend who I've known since we were both six years old. We were both in uh, kindergarten, I believe, when we met, and uh, we've had a number of collaborations over the years, and we're currently uh, recording our first album. After 30 years of, <laughs> of playing around, this is one of the songs that's going to be on that uh, record when we eventually come out. And it's, it'll be immediately recognizable to, to fathers of boys especially. But I think all parents uh, can relate to the, the experience of this metamorphosis that happens in front of you and it happens so fast. I mean, I can remember as a boy hearing adults, my parents' friends, or my grandparents, who maybe hadn't seen me in a while, you know, go on and on about how fast we were growing up and so forth. And you know, as a as a kid, you don't appreciate that; It doesn't feel fast at the time. But when you're seeing it from the outside and you're seeing this uh, this baby grow into this man, it's uh, I mean, it's a miracle, and I call it a miracle in slow motion. And so, this is uh, all about that experience. It's a composite. When I call it, when I say my boy, I have three, but this is a composite of all three of them.
0: So here is my boy...
2: His happiest place was in the sand Now he's gone. I down.
0: So how old are your boys? They
1: are uh, 13, 11, and 9. So they're getting up there. Two in middle
0: school and one in uh, one in elementary school. All right, so the final song that I'd like you to introduce is a, an instrumental called Chicken Fingers. <laughs> and, right, and, how did, and how did you come up with the name F- Chicken Fingers? Well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is the ultimate example of going from the sublime to the ridiculous. It, but as I said, God wants us to have fun, right? Yep. And this is just purely purely fun. The style of guitar that I play most is, is thumb-picking guitar, and in that style there's something called chicken-picking, chicken-picking. It's a kind of muted style where you're making the guitar cluck. The fingers are my fingers, and the chicken is uh, is what the guitar is imitating throughout this. And this is, I kind of feel like this is a, uh, if Herb Alpert and uh, Jerry Reed got together and had a baby it might sound
0: something like this so this is chicken fingers So you're quite talented on the guitar.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I do want to I do want to give a shout out to my partner David McLeod. We we play under the name of Moon Dog here in Austin. And uh we we right now we're basically playing coffee shops around town and we're doing a lot of writing and recording. So hopefully in a couple of months we'll have something to look uh, and drop an album as they say.
0: <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing that come out. Thank you. And Avril, thank you so much for sharing your work, your writings, and your music. It was really a lot of fun talking with you.
1: Oh, it's been a a great honor, Warren. And uh, let me say, I didn't realize, is is this
0: the 11th year of a Baha'i perspective?
1: I went through the archives earlier today. Yeah, uh, I think I
0: go back as far as 2005. So, yeah, I guess I'm... I'm, 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 Just
1: congratulations on, on such a great, sustained effort and... I'm really honored to be in the company. I've looked back through the archives of all the all the people that you've uh, had on the show, Rain Wilson, my friend, Zell Cedarquist, Nathan Redstein, so many uh, great names in there and I'm I'm really honored to be among them now.
0: Great. Thanks again, April. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Avril Seal, a Bahai author and musician. You can find his literary work on his website, the trailhead. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number one 800 unite. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. <music>
2: Every mosque and church and temple We intone our dedication To become one congregation Now the sun of truth has risen
0: So JLP Northampton, one oh three point three FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.